Hola, humans, cetaceans, and fans of science-based facts and fact-based reality. Welcome to Scanna, a podcast about orcas, oceans, and the environment. I'm Mark Laren Young, author of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. And now it's time to introduce this episode's special guest, me. I was recently invited to launch a new speaker series, Nautical Nights, for the BC Maritime Museum. I was talking about Moby Doll, the subject of my book, and the star of the museum's new special display. Because most of the audience had already read my book, I tried to tell some stories that weren't in it, including how I became obsessed with the first ever killer whale in captivity, and the story of Moby's podmate, Granny, J2, the star of my new documentary, The Hundred-Year-Old Whale, which receives its world premiere at Canada's biggest environmental film festival, Planet in Focus, as part of their Wildlife Shorts program, October 21st at the Al Green Theatre. If you're going to be in Toronto, tickets are still available, and you can see our movie along with films about elk and turtles. Tickets and info at planetinfocus.org. Scan is brought to you by the heroes who are making this happen through Patreon.com, including Eagle Wing Tours, It's Only Natural Clothing, Nicole Natras, Erica Hargreave, and Chantelle Shawnee Sador. And now, let's head to the BC Maritime Museum in beautiful downtown Victoria. Here's their executive director, David Leverton. Um, of course, our very first presenter tonight uh, is Mark Learn Young, and I think you've all had a chance to have met Mark, and if not, you'll have a chance to uh, <coughs> this evening. Um, Mark was swallowed by a whale named Moby Doll. Um, his latest book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, um, about the first ever orca displayed in captivity, uh, won the 2016 Science Writers uh, Award as well as the Communicator Book Award. And he was nominated for the RBC Taylor Award and the Hubert Evans Prize. Mark is a, uh, directing a feature documentary about Moby and his short documentary, The Hundred-Year-Old Whale, uh, debuts at festivals this fall. Uh, he hosts the popular podcast, Scana, about orcas, oceans, and the environments. Uh, Mark is also a playwright uh, whose work has been produced around the world. He has two plays right now, uh, writing in Vancouver this season. One, Shylock, uh, which is at Bard, uh, Bard on the Beach in, uh, in September. I'm sure many of you might know that. And also, uh, Bar Mitzvah Boy, which debuts at the Pacific Theatre in March 2018. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome. Thank you. Wow, thank you so much for having me for this. I'm thrilled to be your inaugural visitor uh, and kick this off. Uh, I'm going to ask a question that I don't usually ask to start these things because so many of you have me sign books before. Show of hands, how many of you have already read the book? So we've got about half and half. So I want to make sure that I kind of go beyond the book for those of you who've, uh, for, for those of you who read it and set the rest of you up. So, Let's see. The, one of the questions I got asked before this was, how in the world did I get involved in this? Which is a bigger question when you look at most of my stuff pre-Moby Doll, which includes writing a lot of comedy. Uh, so, not a science writer. 
I'm not coming from a science background. And somebody asked me how I got involved in this story, and I said, because it's not science, it's science fiction. This is first contact with an alien species. That's how I fell in love with this story. Now, I was a, I'll, I'll start at the beginning for this. I was a freelance journalist in Vancouver. I used to work for McLean's magazine. I wrote everything. This was when I wasn't being funny. I was a serious journalist. And one of the stories I got was one of the never-ending series of stories about cetaceans in captivity at the Vancouver Aquarium. So this is 91. You can see how much has changed. We haven't talked about that in, oh, hours, I'm sure, in the newspapers. And so I did this story, and I thought, I want to get the ultimate voice speaking for the whales. I'm going to track down Paul Watson, because it's McLean's, and it used to be, if you worked for McLean's, everybody answered your call. It was kind of awesome. I worked for a whole bunch of papers like the Georgia Strait. You call from the Georgia Strait, maybe they answer, maybe they hide. You call from some of the other newspapers or magazines, you spend half an hour explaining what they are. Yeah, I write for this Canadian magazine. Yeah, okay, thanks. But McLean's, they answer your calls. So I tracked down Paul Watson, and he said, do you know the Vancouver... He said, first, he said, as aquariums go, Vancouver Aquarium wouldn't be the one I'd be upset about. And he kind of listed everything else off. And he said, I'm not really in captivity. is not really my issue, so I can't give you the quote you're looking for. But did you know that the Vancouver Aquarium is the first place that ever captured and displayed a killer whale? And no, I didn't know. And I couldn't believe everybody didn't know because how amazing is this? And I did... Two different things that freelance writers do not do. The first thing, I decided that this part of the story was just for me. I decided I was not going to include this bit of information in my file to McLean's magazine. I thought, yeah, I can write the story without it. This is, and I, I have no idea why I did that. I just went, I'm not wasting that. I want to know this story myself. And then I did something else that freelance writers do not do. I decided I was going to track down the guy who caught this whale, because I could not believe that anybody went out to intentionally harpoon a killer whale, which is what happened. I just could not wrap my head around it. I grew up in Vancouver. I was a scan of baby. So as a kid, I just knew that whales were awesome and lovable and brilliant. And the idea that somebody would intentionally harpoon a whale, an orca, was beyond me. So... I tracked down the retired director of the Vancouver Aquarium, Dr. Murray Newman, and I went to meet him. And this is the thing freelance writers don't do. You don't meet people when nobody's hired you, when nobody's given you an assignment, because who knows, it could take you 20 years to sell the story. So I decided I was going to meet Dr. Murray Newman, but, and I walked in pretty much convinced I was going to hate him because he had harpooned a whale. And I just could not wrap my head around this. And the there were two things that he said that threw me for a loop. First thing he did when I asked him Moby Doll and why he would do this, because the, the basic plan of this expedition, how he caught this whale, and I'll get into that in a minute, was not to catch a killer whale, because that was insane. 
nobody would catch a monster like this, but to kill a killer whale. So the plan was to harpoon this whale and then do an anatomically accurate sculpture that would hang from the ceiling of the Vancouver Aquarium. And this was considered such cutting-edge science that he had an anatomically accurate sculpture that the Smithsonian signed on, and they were going to do this as well. So this was the Vancouver Aquarium working with the Smithsonian. So, I'm tr oh, there's a beep. Oh, that's okay. I was like, oh, I thought it was me, so don't feel bad. I'm like, do I have a beep on my phone anywhere? No. Um, so this was considered such cutting-edge science that the Smithsonian signed on to it. And Dr. Newman threw a question at me that threw me. He asked me if I had ever heard of a basking shark, and I had not. Um, this is a pretty educated audience, so I'm guessing a lot of you are going to say yes. But how many of you have heard of basking sharks? Okay, most of you. Um, I knew nothing. For the handful who don't know anything about basking sharks, basking sharks are huge and terrifying, and they're one of the biggest things in the ocean, and they have huge monster-looking teeth, and they would make fantastic horror movie monsters, and they're absolutely deadly if you're a krill. <laughs> if you are a krill, these things are just the end of the earth. If you are anything other than a krill, you're pretty darn safe. Um, like, basically, the only way these things would hurt a fly is if the fly flew in with dinner. Basking sharks are like tourists at an all-inclusive resort. They just lie around, they open their mouths, and they wait for the krill to float in. That's it. That's all they do. But aside from being deadly to krill, they are also deadly to fishnets. And BC, in other areas uh, where there weren't a bunch, where there weren't quite as many fish you could get that you could turn into money, these whale the the basking sharks were actually caught as a catch on their own. In BC, they were just seen as something that ruined the nets that you needed to catch the salmon and the herring. So what the government of BC, what the government of Canada did was declare the basking sharks dangerous pests. And once they got the designation dangerous pests, what we did was get rid of them. So in the mid-1950s, the Coast Guard equipped one of their vessels with a large spike and basically put a switchblade on the front of one of their Coast Guard ships. I'm watching an animal lover wince right now. Uh, and rammed the basking sharks and basically filleted them. And this was greeted with such joy by the Vancouver and Victoria media. It's astonishing. If you go and look at the headlines, it was like triumphant expedition kills a hundred basking sharks in a day. Uh, so here you've got these absolutely harmless creatures and we've, com we've completely demolished the species. They're just apparently coming back from extinction. Like if you see one now, there's like a hotline number to call because the scientists are excited they've seen a couple of basking sharks floating back. But he asked me this, and that was when I found out that his first crazy expedition was to get a basking shark sculpture before it was too late. So what had happened was they went out in the Coast Guard vessel, got a minimally sliced up basking shark, and again, worked with the Smithsonian so that they could have a basking shark for their, for their ceiling, for their exhibit. And if any of you went to, uh, Vancouver Aquarium, uh, until 
fairly recently, that was the shark hanging from the ceiling next to the whale. And that whale, by the way, was Moby Doll. So we're getting to Moby. So that was the first thing that he told me. And then he pulls out this book that was published just before 1964. And I love this. This is the introduction to the book by Dr. Ross Negrelli, the pathologist at the New York Aquarium, and pretty much the guy for orcas at the time, or killer whales. The fiercest, most terrifying animal in all the world lives in the sea, not on land. Lions, tigers, and great bears are considered savage animals, but many times more powerful and far more vicious than any of these is the killer whale. Now, this is the introduction to a book called Killer Whale with a really big exclamation mark. And in the book called Killer Whale, there is story after story of these deadly whales attacking people, none of which I can find any documentation on. Uh, there is no evidence whatsoever of a killer whale ever attacking anyone in the wild. And believe me, I've asked people for this. So suddenly he's got my attention, and I'm realizing that this wasn't the story that I thought I was finding out about. And this is a lot less, it's a lot less clear cut than I started to, than I went in thinking about. And then as I'm talking to him, he starts to tell me about how the killer whale was declared a dangerous pest in the early 1960s or in the late 1950s. So after we'd wiped out the basking sharks, we decided that the next dangerous pest was the killer whale because the killer whales were taking out all the salmon or so the fishermen around Campbell River thought, and they were scaring some tourists. So they put up a machine gun. Now this was after ruling out explosives. Uh, and this was after allowing military, Canadian and US military would use these killer whales for target practice. There is a heartbreaking story from Time Magazine in the 1950s about the Icelandic government asking the U.S. military to break out their guns and take out the scourge that was eating their herring and ruining their herring nets. And there's a gleeful story in Time magazine about a military expedition taking out a 100 whales in an afternoon. And this was written up as cheery news. So the context was not at all what I expected. And I started to realize that the people who caught Moby Doll thought they had captured a monster. And I'm going to read a little bit from the book to set this up. And here, so now you know what the world was thinking of these whales until July 16th, 1964. July, 19, July 16th, 1964. Thirteen killer whales break through the pristine water off Saturna Island to take a breath under the morning sun. Their jet-black dorsal fins slice through the surf off Canada's west coast, and Joe Bauer can't believe what he's seeing. Two months. The fisherman has waited two months for this moment. And now, just as he's packing up camp, the day after the mission has been abandoned, a pod has appeared, and the whales are swimming toward the shoreline. Whales! shouts Bauer. When Samuel Birch hears his friend, he can't believe it either, and doesn't even glance up as he yells, Bullshit. Then he looks out at the ocean. 
Burrage has been commissioned to craft an anatomically accurate, life-size facsimile of the ocean's apex predator for the Vancouver Aquarium. The sculpture of the creature known as the fiercest, most unpredictable killer on the planet will be the aquarium's centerpiece. Now, after eight weeks of waiting, watching, and dreaming, a killer whale is in sight. There's only one thing Birch needs to do with the whale that will serve as the inspiration for his art. Kill it. Birch takes his place behind an antique muzzle-loaded Norwegian harpoon gun and lines up his target. The bigger whales seem to sense trouble and swim back out to sea, but the smallest one looks Birch right in the eye. Birch stares back at his prey and gauges the distance. It's no more than 90 feet away. His gun's range is 100. He braces for the recoil from the gunpowder charge and fires. A four-foot-long, two-inch-thick steel bolt flies over the ocean. A 600-foot line of rope holding three bright orange boys known as Scotchman trails in the sky like a kite tail. And nothing. The small whale leaps and vanishes under the ocean as if taunting the would-be whaler. Burrich is devastated. The mission is over. He'll never be able to retrieve the harpoon line in time to prepare a second shot before the pod swims away. Bauer, who's taking photos from the bluff below, has a better view through his camera lens. Burrich has harpooned a whale. The spear pierced the skin just behind the skull and hooked the killer like a giant bait fish the men could use to catch a bigger whale. And if they had another harpoon ready, Burrich might take aim at one of the larger killers diving toward their catch. Their ears still ringing from the blast, Burrich and Bauer race toward their boat. Burrich has a rifle to finish the job and for self-defense in case the other bloodthirsty creatures want vengeance. Everyone knows these are the planet's most dangerous beasts, the only animal besides man that seems to kill for sport, a whale that will rip other whales to shreds. As Birch and Bauer chase their victim, two large whales burst through the water. The vicious killers are doing something unthinkable. They are carefully holding the smaller whale aloft. It's unconscious, possibly dead. This isn't an attack, it's a rescue. What kind of monsters are these? So, the big challenge for me as I was starting to do the interviews and starting to research this book was to put myself into the frame of mind of the people in 1964, which is what I was trying to do there, and get a sense of what everybody felt about the whale. And the big shock for me and, and the thing that I had to wrap my head around coming at this when I did was the idea that anyone was ever scared of one of these things. Um, like, I, I could not imagine being scared of a killer whale. As, as a little kid, if I had been allowed to jump on Scanna and ride around the pool, that would have been my idea of heaven. It's, it's like, I could touch the whale. I mean, like, how awesome would that be? You know, a good day was sitting in the splash zone as a little kid. So the idea that somebody would think that these were terrifying was almost impossible to wrap my head around. And that was the question I kept going back to when I was talking to people. And the question sort of became what I built everything around with this, which is, tell me about the first time you saw a whale. And that question, the answers to that question really defined where this project went. Now, I was telling you about how this crazy quest began and where this, this came from. So... After I did this interview with Dr. Newman, I thought, this is a great story. Somebody will buy this. I was writing for everybody. I was writing for McLean's. I will sell this story. Nobody wanted it. I was writing for pretty much every magazine in Canada. History stories are always a tough sell, but 
this was the age of free willy. Nobody wanted a story about a harpooned whale. It was impossible. So I thought, but the biggest thing I thought was Dr. Newman at this time was, at this time was in his early seventies. And I thought, somebody has to film him telling this story before it's too late. Not me, because I didn't know how to film things, but somebody has to do this. Somebody got to do this. So I went to all my friends who made movies and in I knew people with Academy Awards and Emmys. And they were like, this is great. Oh, you should direct a feature. I don't know how to do it. Don't worry about it. Directors just ask questions and they hire somebody smart to use the camera. That's why Rain's here. She's really smart. She knows how to use a camera. Um, so that's what, it's like, that's what directors do. They just go, I'm going to talk. Film me. I'm going to ask questions. So I thought, I can do that. We pitched it. I had an Academy Award winning producer approach attached could not find a buyer. I had the person who's done all of the work on Greenpeace in British Columbia wanted to make this happen. Could not find anybody. And instead of giving up like a normal person, I just kept pitching this. And I, then I sort of put it on hold and I stayed in contact with Dr. Newman. And every once in a while I sort of check in. We become pen pals. Uh, and finally, I'd make a movie about, I guess, 2007 or something like that, 10 years ago, uh, called The Green Chain. And I realized, oh, I can now film things. I know how to do this. So I make plans to hire my cameraman, who's one of the best documentary film people in the country. And I'm going to hire him on my own nickel because I still think somebody needs to film this guy telling this story. Because I can't believe it, and I've now been talked through it. I just, I can't believe anybody ever thought whales were monsters. I can't believe the entire Moby Doll story. So I will film this. I'll film it on my own nickel. And then one day I will give it to the museum or something, but the footage will exist. And I track down Dr. Newman and he says, sure. And then just as we're about to come in and see him, he sends me a letter and says, you know what? I've thought about it and let's let the whale die and rest in peace. Every time I'm old, Every time somebody asks me this story, tells, every time somebody tells this story now, people get mad at me and say I'm the person who started captivity. I don't like being yelled at. You know, if you want to talk about anything else, at which point a sane person would have gone, thank you, this is done. And instead, I became, every year we're exchanging letters. I'm sending him notes. I'm getting Christmas cards. He and his wife, Kathy, are sending me lovely photos of their vacations and going, sorry, Mark, I still will not talk to you about Moby Doll. Um, he's sending me diving magazines. He is still doing research diving into his 80s, going to these exotic locales, cataloging new fish. And he said, you want to talk about new fish? Great. You want to talk about my experiences in World War II? Great. You want to talk about Moby Doll? Not happening. And finally... I hear back from him and he said, you know what? I've thought about it. We can do this. Uh, CBC Radio agrees to let me tell the story as an ideas documentary and the Walrus Magazine, uh, agrees to buy a version, buy the story. So I'm actually being paid. And then a producer said, you know what? I will pay to get you people who know how to film and you can film this. And the day before I'm supposed to bring the film crew in, I get an email from Dr. Newman, and I'm thinking, I know what this says, and I'm not going to open it. He's canceling on me. And I've got a film crew lined up, and then I realize I'm an adult. I can lie. 
I will open his email and I will show up anyway because he and his wife are way too polite to kick me out. And hopefully he will still sign a release form. And instead of kicking me out, there's this beautiful email saying, I've thought about this a great deal and if we're finally going to do this after all these years, we're going to do this properly. So I have invited over Dr. Pat McGear, yes, that Pat McGear, the, so the Zocred cabinet minister, who's also still pushing 90, doing cutting edge neurological neuroscience. Like he is, all the stuff we know about concussions and football players, he's doing concussion work with football players. Um, so he's, so he said, from nine to 11, you, nine till 10, you will interview me. From 10 to 11, you will interview Dr. Pat McGear. From 11 till 12, you will interview our, our, uh, veteran, former veterinarian. And he'd rattled off an entire day. He'd invited every single person who he was still in contact with who was involved in the early whale capture era, lined them up and went, and from noon to noon to one, we will take a break for tuna fish sandwiches. <laughs> it was like, it was that well scheduled. And I went, yes, this is a guy who ran a multi-jillion dollar institution. You can tell. He had perfectly scheduled absolutely everything. So I showed up to film. Rain had just got a camera, a new camera. And I said, she said, what do you want me to do? I said, disappear. I said, just follow the guys around. So I did interviews with um, everybody. And these were all people who were used to talking to the media. So when I was talking to them, they all had their special CBC interview voices on. And they were all talking very formally. Meanwhile, Rain filmed them talking to each other and just kind of chattering and shooting the shit. And so when Moby Doll was caught, when they decided to bring Moby Doll back to Vancouver, they had to find a place to put the whale. And so they called Vancouver, they called Berardiero's dry dock. And the official story was always a little confusing. The better story was the one that Rain filmed Pat McGear saying, Pat McGear sharing, which was basically that the owner of the dry dock was at a cocktail party. He was basically three sheets of the wind, gets this call and says, we got a whale. He's like, yeah, sure you do. Sure you've got a whale. Yeah, can we bring the whale into the dry dock? Yeah, sure. And then starts to sober up when he realizes he's just agreed to let a whale stay in his dry dock for free. And then it's like, the whale has to leave on Wednesday. Um, so we sort of captured that and started on that. This came about, oh, that was the other thing I did. I pitched this as a book 20 years ago. Nobody wanted it. Then after the radio documentary won uh, the Jack Webster Award for Best Radio Documentary of the Year, I was at Greystone Publishing came up and said, would you like to do a book about this? And I didn't believe them. After 20 years of pitching this, I just didn't believe them. So about a week later, I get a call saying, why haven't you called me back? And I said, oh, you were serious. Oh my God, you were serious. So that's, that would be how the book happened. Um, now, what happened with the whale is that one of the pivotal moments is the one that I've just read about, was that moment when the two other whales came to the rescue. And when the whales were shot by the military, it, uh, the story was written up in Time magazine, when the whales were shot by the military in Iceland, there, the reporter wrote about how the other whales attacked their bleeding friends 
because they thought that whales were like sharks and had feeding frenzies. They knew that they knew that killer whales killed other whales. So they assumed they would kill each other. In Campbell River, part of what they thought would make the, the machine gun so effective was they were convinced that if they shot one whale, the other whales would finish it off. That's what we thought about whales. That's what we thought about these killer whales. Instead, these two men saw compassion and weren't sure what to do anymore. Now, the one guy who didn't show up was at this event and who didn't show up at any events where he was invited to was Joe Bauer, who's the only living person who was still, who was there at the time. And Joe Bauer became his own, my own special quest. Joe waited till after I had done the radio documentary, listened to that, and then went, yeah, I guess you're okay. <laughs> Dr. Newman Cleary. Joe has given three interviews in his life about this. He had talked to a university student for a thesis. He had talked to, oh no, the other interview was about growing up in Steveston. So he'd done an interview about growing up in Steveston. He'd done an interview for a thesis. And he'd done an interview in the early 90s with the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. And he wasn't really sure what to do with me um, because he didn't want to tell his story. And I couldn't figure out why. And there was a forum on Saturna Island where all the people involved in the Moby Doll capture and, and whale experts, all the people who were influenced by this whale, showed up at this forum. And Joe was supposed to be one of the guests of honor. And the heartbreak on the organizer's face when Joe did not get off that last ferry was phenomenal. And Richard Blagborn put this together and when Richard welcomed everybody to Saturna, I think he spent 15 minutes going, and Joe Bauer isn't here. Right? Like, I mean, he just telling the story of trying to get him. And what happened was, Joe is so respectful to the scientists. He still feels, he was the kid on the expedition. He was the assistant to everybody. And he still basically has so much respect for them that he didn't want to go and contradict them on anything. And one of the things that he, that he took offense to is that in every official story of Moby Doll, people talk about the whale being towed to Vancouver. And as a, somebody who's lived on the water his entire life, he was very upset at the use of the term towed. Um, and he and Sam Burrich, the sculptor, both took offense immediately. If you go back to the stories in 1964, somebody says towed, and Sam Birch was like, we did not tow that whale. We led that whale. Um, and they talk about, you know, because if they, towing implies the line was taut. And as Joe explained to me in much detail over the last few years, if the line was ever taut, they would have killed the whale. So if they'd actually towed it, if they had dragged it, the whale would have died. But that was the word Marie Newman and Pat McGeer used. And he didn't want to embarrass them by saying otherwise but he wasn't going to sit there and have them say that. And that seemed to basically be what it all came down to, why he would never speak publicly. And there were a few other things that were in here. And it was interesting because when I met Joe, after this moment, because the plan was to kill the whale, after the whale was shot, all of these people from Saturna Island showed up. And Joe said all these people showed up with rifles and started taking shots at the whale. And that he got in a skiff and put himself between the people with the rifles and this small whale. And I thought, 
I don't know. I mean, I come from a journalist background where I just sort of start with the default that everybody's at least lying a little bit. And I thought, really? He got in a skiff and put himself between the guys with the bullets and the whale. And one thing I did not put in this book because I could not find anything to give it any, to, to give it any grounding. I could not find enough details to put it in. That very shortly after the whale was captured, a CBC camera person showed up on the scene. And there's footage that pretty much no one has ever seen in 50 years of the, of the capture of like, or very early on of the struggle as it was written up. And there is Joe in that skiff next to the whale. And after that, it's like anything Joe told me. Yeah, I'm in. Um, if he's not making that up, he's not making anything else up. But also his story was remarkably consistent. I'd interview him over and over to make sure. But the trick to interviewing Joe Bauer was to show up at the cafe he liked where all the old fishermen hang out in Steveston and show up and buy tea and go, okay, Tommy Kent's like, and it took forever to film him. And Joe was my greatest catch in telling the story. And I'm going to show a little bit of Joe doing his, I, I'm going to let Joe tell the story of Moby Doll now. And this is part of the Moby Doll display here at the Maritime Museum. No, I'll tell you one more thing about this while it's being ramped up. The reason the documentary doesn't exist after interviewing everybody is that documentary, this documentary really requires archival footage. I want some archival footage from the CBC that nobody has seen for 50 years, except for myself and the archivist. And that costs $100 a second. There was, now part of, part of the, the amazing thing about being on this story for so ridiculously long, was when all of these people who knew how to make documentaries uh, agreed to work with me, they said, is there any footage? So I tracked down footage from the National Film Board of Canada from the original newsreel, because there was a newsreel that went around the world of the capture of this whale because the story made international news, first killer whale in captivity. So I had written, I had all of these papers from the early 1990s, and I tracked down the NFB and said, I'd like that footage. They said, oh, there is no footage of... Yes, there is. I went, no, there, no, there isn't. And I said, here's, here are the original records. And if you can imagine, if you've seen Indiana Jones and that room at the end where the ark goes into, I imagine that is now the NFB archives. So this is from the pre-digitized era. So the only reason they found this footage was because I had codes that predated all of their new stuff. And somewhere in that office was a nerd who was willing to look for me. Yay, archivists. I'm a huge fan of museum people, researchers, and archivists. Because somewhere in there was somebody passionate enough to dig up this footage. And what was lovely was they still wouldn't cut us a break on it, despite the fact that they've lost the audio. And I think I'm one of maybe three people alive who knows who everybody in these, who can actually ID what is happening in the footage. Um, but we paid to license two minutes of it for our film, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, which Rain shot most of that movie. Um, and that is in the clip you're about to see now. So what you are seeing here has not, maybe 150 people have seen this before you tonight in the last 50 years. As recently as the mid-1960s, most of the great whales were still hunted for oil, or pet food, 
or fertilizer. Or to use their parts as prehistoric plastic. But killer whales were killed, often shot on sight, just because they eat the same fish we do. There was a, usually a, some sort of offensive against the so-called killer whales that ate our fish. You know, in Canada even, they were strafing them, and the U.S. was bombing them, strafing them, and fishermen were shooting them and throwing depth charges in, trying to get rid of them. They've also been killed because most people believe that killer whales were monsters. Just ask this seal. Everything changed in 1964 when the Vancouver Aquarium sent a team to catch a killer whale, a team that included fisherman Joe Bauer. I'm the only one that's still alive. We're actually on an exhibition. Sam's gone, and we were the only two there. The whole idea was to, to kill a killer whale because they're so ferocious and everything else, it would be impossible to keep them and to take the measurements in the water because I was a diver that I could do the measurements underneath in the water. The aquarium set up camp on Saturna Island, one of the few places in the world where killer whales swim right next to the shore. We, we thought we'd missed, you know, like it was over, that was it. And then uh, the lines started to move. Then all of a sudden, we seen the other two whales coming there and then lifting Moby up. So he could breathe. Because all of a sudden, people showed up on the beach with rifles, with the whales still being alive. And a lot of these people decided that it was their you know, thing to come down and take a shot at the whale to help kill it. So then I decided to get out between the guns and the whale. Sam was very ticked off. He was just totally petrified that I was going to be uh, dead. <laughs> I didn't have any fear of the, of the animal. I guess maybe I was just too young and stupid. And then got closer and closer and closer to where I was right to where I could see where the harpoon had gone straight through. And I hollered back at Sam. I, sa I said, Sam, get a hold of uh, Dr. Newman. I think we got a live whale if we want it. They led the whale on an 18-hour journey to Vancouver at the end of the harpoon line. The media went wild. It was like P.T. Barnum had captured King Kong. Its relatives were way back that were following at, at quite a distance. The experts thought their whale was female and named her Moby Doll. On the single day the public was allowed to meet the monster, an estimated 20,000 people showed up the same number that saw the Beatles in Vancouver later that summer. Less than three months later, the orca drowned, dying of exhaustion because the polluted water made it too difficult for Moby to stay afloat. During the autopsy, scientists realized how little they knew about the species when they discovered she was actually a five-year-old male. It's only because we were able to keep that whale alive that we learned as much as we did about orcas and uh, their, their families and their connections and their intelligence and, and uh, things of that nature. Uh, but uh, people thought that they were just totally killers. I mean, they just killed everything, eh? And uh, 
that wasn't the case. Because Canadian film funding is insane, um, I actually approached my producer for the Moby Doll movie and I said, I've got this incredible story. There's a whale. Some people think she's 100 years old. We've got to do that as our next movie. I can't fund this one. And then there was a competition for Bravo Fact short films and we won that. And suddenly we have the feature, which we've shot, I don't even want to think of how many hours of on credit cards with no budget whatsoever. And we had $60,000 to shoot that. And the biggest thing that I wanted to do with that was get Joe Bauer on camera with the best camera person I could get. And the person who shot that at the BD Museum worked for National Geographic. We hired him for one day. I said, no, Joe's agreed to show up. We're getting, you're like taking no chances whatsoever. So I became kind of, as you may have gathered, a little obsessed with the Southern residents of Moby's family because it was a little wild to discover that Granny was not only related to Moby Doll, was from the same pod, J-Pod, but it's conceivable that Granny, depending on what you, how old do you think she was, if you, if you think she was over 100 or if you think she was 80, which is the low estimate, if she was 80, which is the low estimate, she could have been Moby's mom. If she was over 100, which is the high estimate, um, then she would have been Moby's grandma, and grandmas look after baby whales. So it is absolutely within the realm of possibility that Granny was one of the whales that rescued Moby Doll, and that's where the obsession with Granny came from. Uh, and it there was one whale that followed Moby all the way into the harbor, all the way to Vancouver, and maybe Granny, who knows, I keep being told somebody has footage of this. So like my holy grail, and I'm sure it will show up the day after the movie is wrapped, is I am determined to find photos of the two whales that did the rescue because I think it may exist. And I'm determined to find an image of that whale that followed Joe and Joe Bauer and Sambridge. Now, I wanted to briefly turn this over to Rain because she became Granny's cinematographer for a little while. So I just wanted to... Part, part of the obsession with the orcas came about, I just read a, I learned a great word today. Um, oh God. That's the opposite of anthropomorphism. I'm going to look this up on the, if I look this up on the phone, will I destroy the recording that you're doing? Excellent. Uh, we'll find out in a moment. No, no, no. It was a great word, anthropodenial. And I learned that word today, and it was fascinating because when I started interviewing whale researchers, they've all stopped, they've all gone, I am done apologizing for anthropomorphizing. They are like us, right? Or they're nicer than us. But it, it, but we can't deny that they have a culture. We can't deny they have a language. And we just made all of these discoveries out of Moby Doll. Thank you. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. If you like the show, please tell your friends. I'm Mark Laren Young, and this is the Scanna Podcast. That's S K A A N A. Please spread the word, subscribe on iTunes, maybe give us a nice review so iTunes decides we're new and noteworthy. Also, 
please subscribe to our newsletter at scana.org. We'll send you updates on our upcoming episode, news about orcas and oceans. If the show didn't work for you, I'm Bill Maher, and this was Politically Incorrect. And if you want to find out how the world fell in love with whales, check out my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, now available in paperback, ebook, and a new audio edition at audible.com. And if you're game to help support us on patreon.com or know someone who might be game to sponsor us, that'd be awesome. Our amazing volunteers include Jess Edwards, Isabel Griffin, Chantal Heward, Jennifer Pollock, Ben Wagg, and M.S. Lake. If you'd like to volunteer to help us make this happen, please contact us at scanna.org. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rain Banu, who will be handling the Q&A for the world premiere of The Hundred-Year-Old Whale. Since I'm our guest today, I wanted to end off with a tune from one of my favorite Canadian country singers. Saw her at the Biltmore in Vancouver a few years ago, and wow. Here's Lindy Ortega with Tell It Like It Is. Tell me what I mean.